is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Good evening. Welcome to Psychiatry Today. This is Dr. Scott Bay, your host, and you're a psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And tonight we'll be talking about the latest having to do with the mind, the brain, human behavior, how to feel well emotionally, how to cope better with stress, current events pertaining to mental health issues, how to make sense of media reports on research into the latest causes of mental illness and potential new treatments, and all of that delivered to you without the hype and distortion of other media sources, with the benefit of more than 20 years in the practice of psychiatry, along the way trying to reduce the stigma associated with having a psychiatric illness and needing treatment for it, as well as better informing the general public about mental health issues. And I hope you had a happy and safe Labor Day holiday weekend. This is the podcast pre-recorded for airing on Wednesday, September the 9th, 2015. And welcome to the show to all of you playing it back on AmericasWebRadio.com or listening to it live at 7 p.m. Eastern Time on that website. And again, let me give a shout-out to those of you who download the podcast from iTunes. Thank you so much for your loyal listenership. Really can't tell you how much I appreciate that. To start out tonight, we're going to be talking about an issue that psychiatrists and their patients struggle with quite a bit. And this is the issue of why do so many people with mental illness stop taking their medication? This is also something that family members of those with any kind of mental illness also struggle with. And occasionally this type of thing will leak its way into media reports about violent incidents and other incidents that involved the mentally ill who were once on medication but stopped taking it. So I thought, yeah, this is an appropriate issue uh, for me to examine on this program. The story of someone with a psychiatric condition discontinuing his or her medication is a common one. Pop culture has portrayed or referenced the tangled web of discontinuing medication countless times, recently in major feature films like Silver Linings Playbook and TV shows like Homeland. So why do so many go off meds voluntarily? There are several reasons patients discontinue taking medication or are reluctant to start taking it in the first place. Many with mental illness don't see their symptoms as issues. This is a struggle for healthcare providers. The very nature of the illness can cause the patient to view symptoms as unproblematic. Take someone who is manic depressive or what we now call bipolar. The nature of the state of mania, the highs, is that the person has a ton of energy. They feel like they can change the world. They're functioning on very little sleep. They often feel very creative. From the outside looking in, 
Others can see this is problematic, but they can't. Taking medication would be a buzzkill for them. Every mental illness has its own issues, though. You can also look at something like schizophrenia. Someone who suffers from that may not feel they need medication. They may lack insight into their beliefs and don't see them as distorted. For example, that the government is spying on them, that aliens are watching them, or so on. These are the primary effects of the typical pills, which include antidepressant, anti-anxiety, antipsychotic, and mood-stabilizing medications, among others. Patients with mental disorders often cite feeling numb or like a zombie, but the secondary effects can be just as potent reasons for stopping too. I would like to add that in my opinion, if someone's medication is making them feel like a zombie, then something is wrong. Either they're on too high a dose or it's just not the right medication for them. But that's obviously a side effect that needs to be addressed. And I also think that if you're not attentive enough to side effect issues uh, as a uh, prescribing physician, then that increases the risk that the patient will stop taking their medication. Now, the side effects of all these medications can take a huge toll, and this is a major factor in why patients stop taking them. For those with mental illness, medications can be life-altering, allowing the individual to function at a level commensurate with their peers. And while many of the side effects resolve within a matter of days of starting the medication, some are quite significant and lasting depending on the particular individual. Side effects vary quite a bit from medication to medication as well and range from relatively mild issues like dry mouth and dry skin to more significant problems like loss of libido, irregular heart rate, weight gain, and headaches. But oftentimes, the side effects are extremely discouraging and embarrassing for patients hoping for more normality, particularly weight gain and low sex drive. I would also add to that hand tremor can be quite disabling and embarrassing, depending on how severe it is. Uh, but all these things really cause the patient to reconsider the cost-benefit ratio of taking their medication. Part of the cost of taking a given medication is admitting that a mental illness is still present. And this is definitely an issue that many people still struggle with. We cannot escape the fact that mental illness still carries a significant stigma. Society still has a long way to go in fully accepting mental illness, although in the last 20 years or so, there has been a lot of progress. The stigma alone can make it difficult to encourage patients to remain on their medications. Historically, stigma has been associated with noncompliance. And it's not just the stigma that people feel from society directly. It's the self-stigmatization. Uh, people have a hard time accepting that there's something wrong with them, that they need to take medication for it. They struggle with, well, why should I have to take pills 
just to feel good. Uh, other people don't. Medication adherence, formerly known as medication compliance, has always been lower for people with mental illness, ranging somewhere between 30 and 66%. Refusing the appropriate medication can lead to serious consequences, including relapses and hospitalizations. This leads to poor health outcomes, and that exacts a cost on the already taxed healthcare system. On top of that, those who are non-adherent are at risk for homelessness, incarceration, and violence. Recent data suggests that those with mental illness are using emergency rooms in record numbers. Problems resulting from relapse include minor health or psychiatric concerns, but also include more severe consequences like some of the tragedies we have seen in the media. Think the mass shootings and random killings that have made headlines. Unfortunately, non-adherence also arises for a simpler reason. Many do not realize how important it is to take medications as prescribed. <clears throat> Patients may just have trouble taking them as directed. People think, oh, I don't need to take it that rigidly, or they adjust on their own, and then they're reluctant to disclose this to their providers. So they'll take less when they think they're feeling well and don't need it. They'll inappropriately take extra when they're feeling worse, thinking that a temporary increase in their dose will help them get through that. Way too many are missing the basic importance of taking a medication as it is prescribed. They feel as if when symptoms are resolved, medications are no longer needed. There's, they have this disconnect between realizing their symptoms are better, but at the same time not realizing that they need to stay on their medication in order to keep their symptoms under control. Now lots will hear this and think, it's your responsibility, just take the medication. But the fact that noncompliance is so high is a strong indicator that patients do not understand the importance. And it's not just a problem for those with a mental illness, far from it. Medication non-adherence is a big problem among all illnesses that we doctors treat. Think about it. Do you remember your physician saying to take all your medications, possibly antibiotics, and then in a few days in, you feel better? You decide that the medication has done its job, you are cured, and you are now fine. This is the thinking of many patients, no matter the issue being treated. If you discontinue an antibiotic, it wreaks havoc on the immune system and can weaken the body's ability to fight off disease later. In the case of psychiatric medications, it's little different. You're not getting the benefit and symptoms will return. And I tell this to my patients a lot. If you don't finish your 10-day course of antibiotics, what happens is you leave some very hardy drug-resistant bugs behind and the infection can come flaring back even more severe and more difficult to eradicate with antibiotics than before. And if people don't stay on their psychiatric medication long enough, 
and that includes in many cases for a lifetime, their symptoms will eventually come back and may be more difficult to get back under control than they were in the first place, even with exactly the same medication and exactly the same dose that had them feeling fine uh, for the previous episode. A therapeutic dose of the appropriate medication to treat a mental illness can be life-changing. It can return someone to a level of functioning previously enjoyed, but when taking a therapeutic dose, people can have a false sense of well-being and lack of true understanding for the effectiveness in the medication. This means a person on a drug for mental illness may not feel they even have a condition anymore. They don't realize the medicine is doing its job effectively. They don't feel they have a condition at all, and as a result, they don't think it's necessary any longer. All right, we have to take a commercial break here. We'll be back with more of this issue on Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today. This is your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We're talking about the common problem of those with psychiatric illnesses stopping their medications. Unfortunately, when a patient adjusts the dose or suddenly withdraws from their medication, that can spell trouble. 
in order for psychiatric medications to work effectively, the appropriate dose needs to be taken every day without fail. And if not, the risk of relapse is very real. Sometimes when people do go without their medication for a few days or more, let's say they went out of town, left at home, or they just delay or procrastinate picking up their next refill from the pharmacy, for example, and no disaster befalls them, unfortunately this will lull them into a false sense of security and add to their denial that the medication is needed on a daily basis and ultimately increase the risk of non-adherence. Well, what can we do to help encourage those with mental illness to take their medications as prescribed? Medication adherence isn't always easy to determine since it's based on self-reporting from the patients in many clinics. A multidisciplinary team approach would be best but isn't available to most based on the current setup of the healthcare system, which only allows for limited visits with counselors, psychologists, and psychiatrists. That said, some providers are using crafty approaches. With advancing research and technology, there are now devices that can tell how compliant a patient has been by listing how many times the lids on pill bottles have been opened. Some doctors will even count out the pills taken in a large supply to determine patient adherence. In my opinion, these measures are rather intrusive at least. Well, <clears throat> however, if someone really wants to hide that they aren't taking the medications, they're going to. Prevention and education are key. The patient has to be a participant in their care and they need to be educated and understand the ramifications of their illness. They need to be encouraged to communicate with their providers when they are experiencing side effects or there are other reasons why they are considering ceasing their medications. And if a loved one has mental illness and you think they may not be taking their medications, you can help. First, keep the lines of communication open. If you suspect something, you're probably on to something. Try not to approach them in a way that will put them on the defensive, but rather be encouraging. You can also alert that person's healthcare provider prior to a visit. You can call and say you're not sure whether or not they'll bring up a medication change at the appointment, but you've seen something you care and you want them to know. I personally think the key to medication adherence starts with a good working relationship between the patient and the healthcare provider. If there is a good working alliance, if there's a good working relationship, if the healthcare provider makes the patient feel like a partner in the decisions to take medications and which ones and when to make changes and adjustments, then, and also very importantly, that the healthcare provider has given the patient a thorough and understandable explanation 
for why the patient needs to continue to take their medication and that there are risks and what those risks are of stopping their medication. Uh, these are things that will increase and improve the chances of adherence. And uh, also, if the healthcare provider is attentive to issues that make someone less likely to be adherent, uh, if they're understanding and reassuring about stigma, if they address concerns about uncomfortable side effects, either by changing medications or adjusting the dose or prescribing antidotes to side effects, uh, these are things that will make a patient more comfortable taking your medication uh, and improve the chances of medication adherence. <clears throat> Moving on to our next topic here on Psychiatry Today, how can we prevent suicide, the ultimate complication of mental illness? And now a major study shows risk factors associated with depression uh, the behavior patterns which precede many suicide attempts have been determined by this study, and this may potentially lead to changes in clinical practice in the care of patients affected with depression, as it shows the clinical factors which confer major risk of suicide attempts. The statistics for suicide are frightening. According to the World Health Organization, more than 800,000 people commit suicide every year, with perhaps 20 times that number attempting suicide. It is one of the leading causes of death in young people. Effective measures of suicide prevention are urgently needed. In the time it takes my podcast to air, uh, between three and four people in the United States will take their own lives. Now, the study that we're talking about is called the Bridge to Mix study. It's a major international study looking at depression and suicide. Researchers evaluated 2,811 patients suffering from depression, of whom 628 had already attempted suicide. Each patient was interviewed by a psychiatrist as if it were a standard evaluation of a mentally ill patient. The parameters studied included previous suicide attempts, family history, current and previous treatment, patient's clinical presentation, how they scored on the standard global assessment of functioning scale, and other parameters. The study looked especially at the characteristics and behaviors of those who had attempted suicide and compared these to depressed patients who had not attempted suicide. They found that certain patterns recur before suicide attempts. They found that what are called depressive mixed states often preceded suicide attempts. A depressive mixed state is where a patient is depressed but also has symptoms of excitation or mania. They found this significantly more in patients who had previously attempted suicide than those who had not. 
In fact, 40% of all the depressed patients who attempted suicide had a mixed episode rather than just depression. All the patients who suffer from mixed depression are at much higher risk of suicide. They also found that the standard Diagnostic Statistical Manual or DSM criteria identified 12% of patients showing mixed states, whereas their methods showed 40% of at-risk patients. This means that the standard methods are missing a lot of patients at risk of suicide. In a second analysis of the figures, they found that if a depressed patient presents any of the following symptoms, including risky behavior, for example, reckless driving, promiscuous behavior, psychomotor agitation, such as pacing around a room, wringing one's hands, pulling off clothing and putting it back on, and other similar actions, or impulsivity, that is, acting on a whim, displaying behavior characterized by little or no forethought, reflection, or consideration of the consequences, then their risk of attempting suicide is at least 50% higher. Now, these behaviors are certainly important for clinicians to pay attention to in terms of being better able to assess patients' risk of attempting suicide, but I think this is also important for loved ones of those who suffer from depression to know these warning signs as well. Risky behavior, uh, agitation, and impulsivity. Most of these symptoms will not be spontaneously referred by the patient. The clinician needs to inquire directly, and many clinicians may not be aware of the importance of looking at these symptoms before deciding to treat depressed patients. This is an important message for all clinicians, from the general practitioners who see depressed patients and may not pay enough attention to these symptoms, which are not always reported spontaneously by the patients. The strength of this study is that it's not a clinical trial. It's a real trial with <clears throat> Uh, the real-world patients. And again, uh, very important, hopefully the take-home message for clinicians is be aware of these symptoms. And likewise, as I said, the take-home message for those who have friends or loved ones with depression also, be on the lookout. The combination of depression with psychomotor agitation or excitation, risk-taking behaviors, and impulsivity. Now, there's another study that uh, looks at, in terms of suicide, difficulty making good choices is also one of the factors that make people vulnerable to suicide. So let's now talk about this. Not even close to every person who faces challenges or lives with severe depression commits suicide. Some people are more vulnerable than others. A series of studies has shown that the way in which a person makes decisions is among the main factors that determines whether that person is protected from or vulnerable to suicide. High-risk decision-making was prevalent 
among many parents of individuals who committed suicide, which may serve to explain its apparent inheritability. In other words, the personality trait of uh, making high-risk uh, decisions uh, is uh, part of the heritability of the tendency to attempt or commit suicide. We'll examine this issue in more detail and have other mental health news after this next break. You're listening to Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. We are examining what are specific risk factors for committing suicide that clinicians and friends and family members may be better able to be aware of in the hopes of prevention. Now, this latest study on the subject of how high-risk decision-making can predispose an individual to commit suicide um, demonstrates this, and by the same token, it leads to potential solutions for prevention. Suicidal thoughts must be studied indirectly. Previous studies have focused on individuals who have attempted suicide, So in order to understand the vulnerability to suicide and to study the family dimension, researchers focused on the close relatives of individuals who committed suicide, including parents, brothers, and sisters who were in good mental health. They underwent neuropsychological tests. The close relatives of people who commit suicide usually carry certain traits linked to suicide vulnerability, even if they have never expressed them through a suicide attempt. Now, one of these tests is actually a betting game where the players must win as much money as possible by choosing cards from among several piles. Some piles carry more risk. They sometimes pay off big, but they lose over the long term. Other piles are safer. Payoffs are small, but the losses are also small. 
While individuals from families without suicides learn to choose the piles that pay off over the long term, the relatives of suicide completers continue to make high-risk choices, even after numerous attempts, thereby demonstrating a higher degree of difficulty in learning from their experiences. A functional MRI of the brain confirmed that certain areas of the prefrontal cortex that are used for decision-making function differently among these individuals, and similarly to those who have attempted suicide. People who have a tendency to make risky decisions lean towards solutions that provide short-term benefits despite the high risk, instead of solutions that are safer over the long term. They also have difficulty identifying alternative solutions when faced with a problem. This can explain the link between decision-making and suicide. Within the context of a major depression, this difficulty making good decisions can translate into choosing death, which is a solution that ends the suffering immediately, despite its irreparable consequences, without seeing any alternative solutions. Add to this the fact that making poor life choices in general creates a variety of stress factors. Individuals who make risky decisions experience more problems in their personal relationships, which represent classic triggers for suicidal crises. The study also points toward possible solutions for at-risk individuals, which must be confirmed by additional research over the coming years. Beyond decision-making, they also found that the close relatives of suicide victims who were in good mental health performed very well in other tests, demonstrating the ability to control their thoughts. This may counterbalance their difficulty in making proper decisions and may have protected them from suicide. Researchers can foresee developing psychotherapies that focus on decision-making and other cognitive functions in order to reduce the vulnerability to suicide. Over the long term, the use of neurostimulation may also be included in the range of tools that are available to help individuals who exhibit suicidal tendencies. The decision-making test scores for individuals who are in good mental health can be improved by stimulating certain areas of the brain with a mild electric current using electrodes affixed to the skull. Medications that target decision-making represent another research approach. We won't resolve the problem of suicide by focusing only on decision-making, but now there is the prospect of one more therapeutic tool that can be used to help these patients. <clears throat> and the idea that high-risk decision-making is a risk factor for attempting suicide echoes the results of the other study, which found impulsivity to be a risk factor for suicide. Now on psychiatry today, let's turn our attention to the topic of sleep. 
Uh, I actually have two articles I want to go over with you relating to sleep. The first one is a common myth about sleep. The idea that, well, if I didn't get a good night's sleep or didn't get enough sleep, uh, I'll just catch up my sleep some other time, typically on the weekend when I don't have to get up early for work. But the notion that you can catch up on sleep is patently false, folks. I'm sorry to inform those of you who firmly believe you can and do that do catch up on your sleep. Uh, you're only kidding yourself. This doesn't happen. So when I saw this article, I was like, this really needs to be one of those myth-busting moments on this podcast uh, because too many people harbor this catch-up-on-sleep myth. Um, in a recent Centers for Disease Control survey, 35% of Americans, just more than a third, said they get fewer than the recommended seven minimum hours, preferably eight, but seven minimum of sleep every night. And that is definitely a big deal considering we need sleep to rest, recharge, reduce stress, and even to make sure we can lose weight or don't gain too much weight. If you're the type of person who's clocking four to five hours of sleep every weeknight, chances are you're you've tried to catch up on sleep by sleeping a few extra hours on the weekend. But is it really possible to get back that time of sleep that you lost? Our bodies require regular sleep, seven to nine hours every night. If we start to sink below that seven-hour minimum, we fall into what's called a sleep debt. Over time, as that debt climbs, it becomes more and more difficult to catch up on sleep. A few restless nights, or what researchers call acute sleep deprivation, is an easy debt to repay. Just snooze for three to four more hours than usual over the weekend, and you should be back on track. It's much harder to catch up on sleep if you have chronic sleep deprivation, which is logging fewer than five hours for an extended period of time. In one study, after sleeping for six hours per night for two weeks, study participants' physical and cognitive abilities were impaired on a level similar to someone who had gone without sleep for two nights straight. But even when they were walking zombies, most people had no idea that they were so sleep-deprived because that foggy state becomes the scary norm. So the takeaway is it's possible to catch up on sleep if you've had just a couple of rough nights, but the longer we go without sleep, the harder it is to get the sleep back. Now, <clears throat> next, I found this article that is kind of an update on some apps and online programs that can expand the availability of cognitive behavioral therapy for the treatment of insomnia. Now, I've often talked about on this podcast how cognitive behavioral therapy is a very effective treatment for sleep problems, for insomnia, uh, but the difficulty with that is 
cognitive behavioral therapy is not readily available to most people. Um, insurance coverage for psychotherapy is limited in many cases, and uh, the availability of CBT, uh, short for cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBTI, short for cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, is due to the fact that not every therapist you might go see is adequately trained uh, or educated or skilled in conducting cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So uh, for those of you who have trouble sleeping, uh, you might find this information helpful. And as I go through it, you might want to take down the name of some of these apps and online programs and, and try them out for yourself, see if they help you sleep better. Uh, <clears throat> this information comes from a discussion that took place at the annual meeting of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society, in which researchers discussed ways that technology is enhancing their ability to help people with insomnia. Mobile apps and Internet programs are expanding the availability of cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI. The first-line treatment for this disorder, uh, according to speakers at a symposium on the topic at the joint annual meeting, um, of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and the Sleep Research Society, which took place in Seattle back in June. I think that one point there bears emphasizing that cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia being a first-line treatment, not sleeping pills. Uh, sleeping pills are very widely used and prescribed, unfortunately much more than cognitive behavioral therapy, but this should not be considered first-line treatment, not only because they present a lot of dangers and risks and uh, serious side effects, including permanent damage to memory and attention and concentration, uh, higher mortality rates have been found in people who take them, even as few as 18 doses in a year compared to people who don't take them at all. Then there's confusion, falls, hallucinations, psychosis, depression, sleep walking, sleep driving, and so on. Um, so again, uh, CBT is considered uh, a top-line, first-line treatment for insomnia, and other research has found that whereas um, they both help, both medication and CBT help in the short term, CBT helps insomnia in the long term much better than medication. All right, we'll continue our discussion of mobile apps and programs for insomnia after this break. This is Psychiatry Today with Dr. Scott. Be right back. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. 
Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to Psychiatry Today with your host, Dr. Scott Bay, your psychiatrist with all the latest mental health-related news. And we're talking about apps and online programs that help people access cognitive behavioral therapy to treat insomnia. An estimated 10 to 15% of American adults report persistent trouble falling or staying asleep, waking too early, and feeling unrefreshed by sleep. Cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, or CBTI, offers a constellation of non-medication interventions to ease these symptoms. CBTI aims to help participants learn about factors that enhance sleep, examine beliefs and practices that interfere with sleep, and adopt behaviors that foster sleep. CBTI customarily involves individual or group sessions, lasting about one hour per week for four to eight weeks, conducted or supervised by specialists in behavioral sleep medicine. CBTI coach users start by recording bedtime, rise time, and other aspects of sleep in a daily diary on their mobile phone. CBTI Coach is a free app for iPhones and Android phones. And I'm looking at the article. It has the symbol for the app. It just says CBT-I, CBT uppercase, the I in lowercase. And it's basically just a blue-green silhouette with a a moon in there, you know, a sliver of the moon. And... um, it's CBTI-Coach is the name of the app, so you can search for that in your app store, either on the Apple uh, phone system or Android. Now, in addition to providing tips on how to strengthen the bed and bed to- bedroom as cues for sleep and why limiting time in bed can increase sleep drive and consolidate sleep, the app describes the benefits of using relaxation strategies, such as scheduling a worry time earlier in the day to reduce bedtime rumination. For users troubled by thoughts of trauma that may trigger nightmares, the app includes self-talk messages 
to ease bedtime anxiety, such as, I know I'm in a safe place. CBTI Coach also offers users tips on managing the use of caffeine and other substances. They can set reminders, such as the time to stop caffeine and start winding down. The app also provides guidance on letting go of beliefs and practices that undermine sleep, such as the notion that there is little one can do about poor sleep, and it urges users to maintain a regular rise time in the morning to strengthen their daily sleep-wake rhythm. Clinicians may prescribe readings or practices specific to an individual's needs. A night owl with insomnia, for example, may need extra encouragement to maintain a fixed wake-up time, to unwind before bedtime, to get morning light exposure, and to learn about internal body clocks that govern sleep, all topics reinforced by app content. Work in progress aims to adapt CBTI Coach for use as a self-help tool by the general public. While in the public domain and free, the app lacks the guidance that a clinician can provide. However, it may still be worth trying. It may still help you. And uh, as the article says, it is being modified. So uh, I'm sure even if you download the current version of the app, uh, if you keep updating it, uh, you'll see how it changes and develops and becomes more helpful even without the guidance of a clinician to go along with it. Several self-help mobile sleep apps on the market offer personalized CBTI feedback to users. One such app is SleepRate. That's S-L-E-E-P-R-A-T-E. The S in sleep and R in rate are capitalized. It uses a heart rate sensor worn on an elastic band around the chest during sleep to transmit data wirelessly to the user's phone. The app analyzes heart rate variability to determine when the user falls asleep, awakens, and experiences various sleep stages. It also detects environmental noises that disrupt sleep. Users complete a daily sleep diary on their phone and receive CBTI recommendations based on their initial assessment period and feedback on their sleep. And then there's Sleepio, that's S-L-E-E-P-I-O, a six-week online sleep improvement CBTI program that relies on sleep data entered manually by users or pulled from tracking devices, and it also offers users personalized feedback. Sleepio users tag factors influencing their sleep patterns, such as staying up late or consuming alcohol. Once a week, users interact with an animated therapist, the prof, who who reviews sleep progress and offers personalized suggestions for next steps, presenting a menu of options for users to explore. 
This Sleepio program has been downloaded by more than 300,000 people since its launch in 2012. While most Sleepio users take longer than six weeks to complete the program, more than two-thirds stick with it for eight weeks. The majority of those who finish the program report they fall asleep faster, awaken less frequently, and feel more alert in the daytime. In an analysis of data from 89,000 users, the experience of lying in bed awake and feeling that sleep is not under one's control is the strongest predictor of sleep complaints in young adults. And this is definitely the type of person that CBTI can be helpful for. <clears throat> and then there is go to sleep. And uh, this is capital G-O, exclamation point, small case T-O, uppercase S-L-E-E-P, go to sleep. And uh, the app symbol is a sheep jumping, a uh, white sheep uh, jumping over uh, a small icon with a purple background. Um, <clears throat> it is a six-week interactive mobile phone and web-based CBTI program. Go to sleep aims to help people with short-term or episodic insomnia, often associated with stress. And it offers physicians and other healthcare providers an alternative to prescribing sleep medications. After users enter their daily sleep data on their phone or online, they get a sleep efficiency report, along with individualized suggestions to improve their sleep. Daily emails encourage users to maintain their motivation to adopt healthy sleep habits. Users can also access advice on relaxation practices and other resources. As of April of this year, about 1,500 people had enrolled in the six-week program and 73% completed the program within nine weeks with most reporting improved sleep. Self-help treatment options, such as the Go to Sleep program, don't replace therapist-led interventions, but they may serve as an initial step in treatment. So there you have it, a look at some online programs and smartphone apps to help with sleep using cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI coach, Sleep Rate, Sleepio, S-L-E-E-P-I-O, and Go to Sleep with an exclamation point after Go. Um, hope that uh, some of you are able to try one or more of those out and find them helpful. Next, scientists show how magnetic pulses change the brain in treatment for depressed patients. A group of UK scientists have found a way of understanding how transcranial magnetic stimulation, or TMS, can give relief to severely depressed patients. TMS is used as an alternative to electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT, but it's not no, it isn't known how TMS achieves its therapeutic effect. Understanding how it works may open the door to better, more targeted treatment for depression and other conditions. 
I should say TMS is a natural non-medication method to treat depression. It uses magnetic pulses uh, applied to the scalp. And if someone is fully conscious, they don't have a seizure, and uh, there are few, if any, side effects. And uh, it's often studied in very severely depressed patients who don't respond either to medication or to ECT. So if you're looking at the most treatment-resistant patients when studying it, it's not getting a fair shake in terms of seeing how it can be helpful in the overall scheme of things in terms of treating depression. But as the article says, uh, we don't understand enough about how it works. Transcranial magnetic stimulation applies a magnetic pulse to the frontal part of the brain of depressed patients. Now this new study shows a targeted magnetic pulse causes biochemical and connectivity changes across the brain. Researchers used MRI-guided targeted bursts of magnetic pulses to the brains of 27 healthy volunteers. And using the same MRI scanner, they were able to measure the subtle functional changes in the brain caused by the magnetic pulses. They were also able to measure the changes in brain chemistry. Researchers found that one session of TMS modifies the connectivity of large-scale brain networks, including areas key in depression, they also found that TMS alters concentrations of certain neurotransmitters, which are considered important for the development of depression. These results mean that for the first time, we have an understanding of the direct results that TMS has on the brain. If we can see the change caused by the treatment, then the treatment can be smarter. It also means that treatment can be better tailored to each individual's brain. In other words, this could be personalized treatment for depression. Well, that's going to have to wrap up tonight's show. Hope you have a wonderful, stress-free week. See you next week. This is Dr. Scott signing off. Good night. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.